hopefully, hopefully you got your fast hearing ears on this morning. I'm going to try to cover uh, a bit of ground this morning. So Romans chapter 8. Let me read from our text again. It's going to be, I'll be reading from verse 18 through verse 30. Romans 8, 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers, And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, Lord, we thank you for this portion that we've just read of your wonderful word, your wonderful gift given to us. Pray that the Spirit would have freedom to take it off of of a page or a digital device, whatever, and implant it into our souls, as James put it. Um, That might deliver us. It might deliver us from sinful passions and temptations and so on. That might help us to sin less and live more holy to the glory of our Savior. So help us to hear. Help us to pay attention. Help us to give our hearts and minds to what you have for us today. Help me as I try to explain or expound on this passage. Um, Keep my lips from speaking words that don't need to be and open my mouth to speak forth the clear truth of the Word of God. We ask this all in Christ's great name. Amen. So, in, in chapter 8, which is all about being alive in the Spirit, right? Which is contrasted to Romans 6, being dead to sin and dead to the law in chapter 7. You know, that's, that's all kind of, it's good news, but it's like it showed the problem. We were dead in sin. In Christ, we were dead to sin. We were dead to, or dead under the law, condemned and ruled over by shame and fear, and in Christ, we are dead to that as well. But we don't have the ability to keep the law, Paul said. He made it very clear. Uh, we just don't have that ability within us. So, what's the answer? Well, that's what chapter 8 is. It's being alive in the Spirit. So we're no longer condemned, he said, because of being in Christ. And what the law couldn't do, God did. God did it for us through the law of the Spirit of life. Um, we were under the law of sin and death, but... The Spirit came into us who have believed, and now we are, in fact, free to live out the righteous requirement of the law, not on our own, not never on our own. In fact, it's always motivated and moved by the Spirit of God in us. And Paul talked about the difference between worldviews of those who know Christ and those who don't, those who have the Spirit and those who don't. And then he began to, to kind of delineate some of the benefits of the Spirit dwelling in us, uh, that we are, and, and we're under obligation to live according to those privileges and those benefits. And that was that we're, we're led by the Spirit. He leads us 
through life in a way that will bring glory to God. Not only does he lead us, but he speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word and through good, uh, good counsel. He speaks to us in prayer and so on. He gives us direction on what to avoid and what to do. And, you know, it's kind of like Isaiah put it. It's like you hear a voice behind you. You turn right or turn left. That's how the Spirit's kind of working in our lives. He works in our conscience and says, uh, you know, that's wrong to do. Don't do that. And, and, and so he leads us and he speaks to us. And one of the beautiful things that he speaks to us, that he's saying to us, is you're a child of God. You've been adopted into God's family by grace. We were singing about that, and, and we've already looked at that. We've been adopted into to, to God's family, and we have all the privileges and all the, the benefits and all the responsibility of the natural-born child, if you will, the Lord Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God. We have all the advantages that he has, and we are heirs of God and, and fellow heirs with Christ and then we looked at the fact at the end of verse 17, he said, since indeed you suffer with Christ. And he's not giving a condition like, if you want to go to heaven, you got to suffer. He's saying, you know Christ and you're an heir of a uh, fellow heir with Christ. That means you are suffering. You suffer just like he suffered in the world. You will suffer in the world too. And then in verse 18, through 25 or through 30, he gives us three reasons that we can sin less and live more holy and even in the face of all the suffering that we experience. And, and the first thing that we saw last week is that we can, we can do that because of our prospect of glory, right? The glory. And Paul had said in verse 17, if indeed you suffer with him in order that you may be glorified with him. And then verse 18, he had said, you know, if the, the truth is all the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us or what will be revealed to us and in us. It's, it's really a, a comparing the weight of things. Take all the sufferings of this present time and put it on one side of a scale and it's, it's like a feather. And take I would just say just a little bit of the glory of God and put it on the other side of the scale and it bottoms out instantly. It's so weighty. And suffering is not, he says. It, it feels weighty at times to us. But he says that's why you need to think like God thinks about this. You need to have a, a God's point of view towards suffering. And remember, Christ went through suffering. Amen. Suffering that we'll never experience because he was perfect. He was sinless. You know, so he had all the temptation, but never giving into it. And so it was constantly present. He, he suffered just living with sinful people. And then, of course, his great suffering that we remembered as we took the bread and the cup, his sacrifice on our behalf. So he did that knowing the prospect of glory for himself as well as for those who would believe in him. And, and so the first reason we should live with suffering in a way that honors God by sinning less and living more holy is knowing the prospect of glory and, and, and evaluating the weight of it, the weight of glory compared to suffering. Momentary light suffering does not compare to the eternal heavy weight of glory. That brings us to where we are picking up today. So if you have your insert, uh, you know, I put a new insert in your bulletin this week, but some of it was from last week. But if you're filling it in, you want to write in creation, longs, and groans. Creation, longs, and groans. So Paul is making a comparison, isn't he? Between what we experience and the suffering that we endure and creation. And in verses 19 through 22, he personifies creation. And he enlarges the perspective of suffering to include all of it. The whole creation suffers under the same impact, the impact of sin in the creation. He says that the creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And then he says that it waits, eager, uh, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God couple words to, to note there. The word for eager longing is found only one other time in the New Testament. And it's very picturesque. It describes a person leaning forward and then stretching out their neck to get a look at something. 
It's not unlike the same picture that Peter gives of the angels who long to look into the salvation that God provides sinners. It's a different word, but it's the same picture. So the creation is stretching out its neck and looking for uh, getting through the pains of childbirth, which is picturesque of the suffering that it is under. It waits with eager longing um, for the day when it will be set free from the, 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 the curse. And then the word translated waits. Waits, it's found eight times in the New Testament. Seven of those times refer to the expectation of believers looking for the return of Christ. Three times right in our text it's used, Romans 8, verse 19, then verse 23 and 25 that refer to believers uh, waiting for the return of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Galatians 5, 5, uh, Philippians 3, 20, and Hebrews 9, 28. I'm not going to repeat all those. If you want to get them from me later, you can. Um, but that's the other seven times that is referring to our waiting for the return of Christ. So Paul personifies creation, presenting it as one who is eagerly waiting and longing for the coming of the Lord's return. When the revealing of the sons of God, right? That's what it says. Creation longs for the revealing of the sons of God. When that will take place. And then the creation will be set free from that which causes it to groan. Now, we know that the creation doesn't have... It's not a person. It doesn't have longings and, and that kind of thing. It's not... He's, he's just using it as an illustration that is parallel to what believers are experiencing, right? So ever since the fall of Adam, ever since the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, the creation's been under the curse, right? And, and it, it was man's sin that put, let's say, thorns on roses. It was man's sin that made animals predators and others prey, right? It, it, with the fall of Adam came great natural disasters like hurricanes and tsunamis and tornadoes and earthquakes and, and droughts and floods. That's all a result of Adam's sin coming under the, the, the creation, coming under the curse. So just as sin brought death and disintegration to mankind, dying you shall surely die when you eat of that uh, tree, God had said to uh, Adam. Um, so it has to the creation. And, 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 and the creation longs for the day when it will be changed, when it will be set free from the curse, is what Paul is saying. So when Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom, the, the earth is actually going to see a lot of transformation at that time. I mean, the scriptures speak of how the desert will blossom and how the lion will lie down with the lamb. And, and it says that a child will be able to play by a viper's den and not be worried about being bitten by a snake. But until that day, creation groans, right? It groans, Paul says, and it suffers like going through the pains of childbirth, longing for the day that it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Now, he uses that as an illustration to get back to, the, to believers in verses 23 through 25. So, Christians, he says, groan, they wait, and they hope. Filling in your insert, they groan, they wait, and they hope. So, Paul's making this parallel. And, and what he does is he says that creation and believers share two things that, uh, similarly. They both groan at the present uh, circumstances, and they both wait eagerly for what the future will bring. C creation groans because of the corruption and decay brought by the curse, and believers groan because of their own struggles with weakness and fighting off sinful passions and, and the pain of living in a fallen world with fallen people. But let us not confuse the groaning of believers with the grumblings of those who don't know Christ, who have no hope. 
Those are two different things, groaning and grumbling. Groaning is expressing oneself uh, sometimes involuntarily. You just, something happens and you go, oh. Or you have a loud, big sigh. That's the idea of this word. And it can be involuntary or voluntary, but it's in the face of undesirable circumstances, isn't it? And it's to feel the pain life brings and express it with an audible or even inaudible reaction, a sigh, a groan. And sometimes life makes you feel like you just got hit in the gut. You got punched in the gut. It takes your breath away. And that comes out as a groan. I don't know if you've ever been punched in the gut I have <coughs> just you can't help it it's just, it takes your breath away now grumbling is different and by the way grumbling some of you will remember this some of you won't because your memory is not quite so good it comes from the the word gunguzo right gunguzo one of my favorite Greek words and it's an onomatopoeia which is another great word but an onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it is so take the word grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. It sounds like what it, it's actually doing. Grumbling, uh, backbiting, complaining, murmuring. That's the idea of, uh, of grumbling, which is quite different than, oh, or, oh. So Grumbling is to express complaints or, or dissatisfaction over what one is experiencing. And most often, most often grumbling involves putting the blame on someone else rather than on yourself or what you're experiencing. Think of the children of Israel. How they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You let us out here in the desert to die. You know. No water, no food. Yeah, that was like for a momentary, <laughs> momentary thing. What? Because God gave them water out of a rock. And God provided them bread from heaven every single day. But they would grumble and they would complain. And, 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 it, and the Old Testament makes it very clear that when they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, they were actually grumbling against God. They were putting the blame on God. That's what grumbling is. Grumbling is not that. So as believers, we know that due to sin, you know, we live in a fallen world with fallen people and that suffering is part of the sanctification process, this section that we're in in the book of Romans, 6 through 8, sanctification. Meaning set apart from sin and unto God as his possession and for his glory, right? So we're to understand that it's part of the sanctification and that it leads to something better called glorification. Another wonderful theological word. And, and so we are to look beyond our spiritual and physical and emotional sufferings and look away to the time when we'll be set free. When we'll be set free from all that hinders and mars and causes pain. And so he says that we wait eagerly for this because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And that's what I, I read just a little bit ago. We wait eagerly because we have the first fruits of the Spirit right now. So the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, at the moment of we place our faith in Christ, is God's pledge to us. That the whole process of salvation will be completed in full in a coming day. He is, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the guarantee of what will yet come to us the, in, in glory. The idea of first fruits. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, Paul says. The idea of first fruits, well, it's very prominent, actually, in the Old Testament. Now, I know not all of you have read through your Bible, so maybe this will be new information. If you've read through the Old Testament, you're going to be familiar with, I mean, this, that first fruits was very prominent uh, in the Old Testament. And, and, and the Jews were expected to bring the first fruits of a harvest and offer it to God, right? They were to, to give an offering to the Lord. And in doing so, they were acknowledging that the produce was the provision of God. God, this came from you. That's why we have a harvest at all. And it also indicated 
the assurance from God's side that the general harvest that would be enjoyed was providentially given. So the believer is saying, we trust in you, you give us everything, and God's saying, you're right, I do, and you wouldn't have anything without me. So the harvest was a guarantee of what was to come. And Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit is given as God's guarantee, his pledge to us, that the full adoption process, he referred to that again in these verses, the full adoption process will be completed when believers receive the redemption of their bodies. Now, we've been redeemed when we put our faith in Christ, right? His blood purchased us, but that's not the redemption that he's talking about. He's talking about the ultimate redemption, which is the glorification of our bodies. To the Ephesian church, Paul wrote that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, Ephesians 4 and verse 30. The Spirit seals us. And by the way, when God puts a seal on something, it protects it from any outside influence. It is representation of not only ownership, but the power to protect. And so the Holy Spirit seals us. We are protected by God through the ministry of the Spirit of God from being taken out of God's family. The adoption process will be completed. It's a guarantee when we receive that full uh, promise in heaven. So believers will receive glorified immortal bodies that will no longer face the corruption of sin. You looking forward to that at all? Yeah, and you know, and that I'm really looking forward to. My body is a mess. I mean, it's breaking down more and more. It's like I go from one surgery to another surgery and now do I need another surgery where I started out? Well, that would be the fourth surgery on that particular area of my body. It's like it's breaking down. It's daily corrupting day by day. But I'm looking forward to that new body that will never need another surgery. No. And I'm looking forward to all the other benefits of being free from sin and temptation and sorrow and sadness and all of that. And we all should be. John the Apostle put this wonderful truth this way in 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Hallelujah. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it doesn't know Him. They are without hope and without God. They don't know God. They don't have what we have. And he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Amen Amen for that. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be a spitting image. We're going to look physically exactly like him, or that we're going to have nail prints in our hands and a spear print in our side. It means that we'll get a glorified body, just like he did when he rose from the dead. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, same idea, waiting the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into, to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Jesus will come and he transforms our body. This lowly thing is going to be no longer lowly. It's going to be like his glorious body. No longer be touched by death and, and physical pains and all of that. And then we read it one more time by Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. This is just glorious. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So we will not all die is what he means, die physically, but we will all be changed, all being believers, right? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Did you see that? It's like you you can hardly see a twinkling of an eye. It happens so fast. In a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. He said, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Their bodies have perished and corrupted in the grave, right? 
Uh, and we shall be changed, meaning we who are alive will be changed too. For this perishable body, the one that died, or, or will die, uh, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body, this body that's not intended to last forever, will put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come about, or uh, come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Well, great day of coming. It is our prospect of glory that makes all the difference. And so it is with this in view that Paul says that believers hope the last of those three words. They groan, they wait, and they hope. Five times in verses 24 and 25 he mentions the word hope. For in this, we hope, for in this hope we were saved. And what he means is in the past, when we believed in Christ, it was our hope. And by hope he means absolute certainty, right? We were saved. When we trusted in Christ, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, or who hopes for what he sees? You know, I get that. I hope I get this for Christmas. You open up the Christmas present, and there it is, and you no longer say, I hope to get this for Christmas. Because it's in your hands. It's no longer a hope, it's a reality, right? It's right present with you. But if, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, he says, in hope we were saved in the past from the condemnation that we deserved, and in hope we live until the Lord returns. And all of it is fulfilled. It is our confident expectation of the Lord's return that allows us to groan without grumbling. Groan. It's okay to groan about what you're experiencing. Groan, but don't grumble and, and wait with endurance or patience under all the suffering of this present time. The word patience or endurance, depending on what your version may have there, it's a word that remains under. That's what it means. Remain under it. Don't try to get out of it. Remain under the suffering because God is doing something wonderful through it. So let us continue to groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the day when all our hopes are realized and, are, and we experience the fullness of what it means to be adopted into God's family. That's just the first point of how we can live with suffering and remain holy you know, to the glory of God. The second point that he makes is we can do it because of the Spirit interceding for us in our groaning. That's verses 26 and 27. Notice Paul's thoughts about the Spirit's ministry to believers in these verses. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you notice that first word, likewise? Some of your versions would say, in the same way. And so when you see that... It makes it clear that Paul's making a comparison, right? A comparison, likewise, or in the same way. And, and the comparison is be, between what he had said in verses 18 through 25, about suffering not being worth comparing with the glory that awaits us, and creation groaning, and longing, and believers groaning, and waiting, and hoping. So... He's taking that and he says, likewise, in the same way, a parallel thought is what he says in these verses. But what's the comparison that he's actually making? I mean, if he's making a comparison, and he is, what is that comparison? It, it definitely is not, uh, is not that we wait patiently. Uh, we wait patiently while we do that, the Spirit like, likewise helps us. Why is that not the comparison? Because that's not a comparison. Right? That's not even a comparison. Nor is it that the hope that sustains us is like the Spirit who sustains us. That's a possibility. But I don't think that's what he means here either. Rather, what he is saying here is the comparison is that just as creation and believers groan and wait and hope, uh, for the revealing of the sons of God, so the Spirit also groans and waits for the revealing, the full realization of our salvation to be completed. 
he groans as well. That's what the text says. He groans with words too deep for expression. He refers to um, the Spirit helping us in our weakness. You know, the, the word translated as help, by the way, it's a beautiful word. It means to take someone by the hand or to come to the aid of someone or to assist someone. So you picture that. It's like you're suffering, you're struggling. And picture the Holy Spirit. He says, Here, take my hand. Let me walk with you. Isn't that beautiful? Kind of the footprints thing that you've seen pictures of or representation, two sets of steps and then there's one and that's like when the God is carrying you through your suffering. That's, that's what the Spirit, he comes to aid us, to assist us in our time of weakness. And the only other time that this word is found in the New Testament is a story recorded in Luke chapter 10 at the house of Mary and Martha. Jesus came for a visit with his disciples and they decided that they would throw a, a dinner, host a dinner for them. Mary and Martha did. And uh, the dinner's happening and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet just soaking up all his words. And Martha's busy in the kitchen and she's getting frustrated at her sister. Why isn't she in here helping me? And she actually goes to the Lord Jesus and says, will you tell my sister to help me? That's the word. Will you tell my sister to come give me help? To aid me? To assist me? And of course, the Lord says, Mary's chosen the better thing. Martha, maybe you want to just put that aside and come and sit at my feet too. Is kind of the idea of what is expressed there. That's only the place this word is used. So, while we have many weaknesses... Because we still live in a fallen world with fallen people and we struggle with sinful passions. There's just one weakness that Paul identifies in the text. I want you to see what it is. That weakness is we don't know what to pray as we ought. We don't know what to pray. It's not how to pray. It's not talking about the manner in which we pray. We don't know the content to use in our prayers. We don't know the words that we should use when we pray about the suffering that we're experiencing. And remember, verses 26 and 7 are directly related to verses 18 through 25 and all the suffering that he's been speaking about. So the, and I want you to notice this too. Paul uses the plural pronouns, us and we, in this. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. Plural, Right? And that, that shows us something. Paul doesn't set himself up on a pedestal and say, you guys are all weak, you don't know what to praise you should, but I'm a real prayer warrior, I got it all together. No, he says there are times even he, he doesn't know what to pray. How many of you have ever experienced that? I don't know what to pray about this. I mean, this morning when, when we gathered for worship, I was talking with Brad and said, I don't know what to pray this morning. Nikki's not going to be here to help me sing. So should I pray that the Lord heal her voice and she gets here real quick? Should I pray that he would uh, help me to sing better than I normally do? Um, should, should uh, you know, we, I just have a, we have a miraculous thing and you all just drown me out while we're singing. I, I didn't know what to pray as I should. Kind of that idea. What, what do I pray? Maybe there's several options that I should pray. I don't know what to pray as I sh- should. And Paul felt that as well. And, and what the Spirit, he says, does when we experience that is he comes to aid us. And he gives us the assistance we need to see ourselves through the suffering. Now many times we face a trial where we go through suffering and we don't know how to analyze it. We don't know how to explain it. And definitely we don't know what God wants to do through it. Right? We're without enough wisdom, and we don't know what God may want to accomplish in and through us in a given situation. And it is at those times, Paul says, that the Spirit of God intercedes. He intercedes, comes to our aid, and he voices to the Father what needs to be said. Isn't that beautiful? He voices. I don't know what to say. The Spirit always knows what to say. And Paul says he does this with groanings too deep for words. What? Now some have taken this 
as a reference to speaking in tongues or you know that that particular gift where you're speaking in if you're looking at it biblically it'd be speaking in a language that you didn't previously know if you look if it's as a lot of charismatics think of it it's like it's just speaking in language that you don't even know which is by the way not even a language but he says that i mean that can't be what he means and the reason is because no words are expressed. These are groanings too deep for words, and the word that is translated too deep for words would be better understood as unexpressed, unspoken, wordless. Groanings that are wordless. Groanings that are unspoken. Groanings that are unexpressed. I mean, the Spirit's expressing it, but not audibly. It's not happening audibly, and it's not happening through us. There's no word spoken. It's just happening between the Spirit and the Father. So, listen, our sense of uncertainty may be extensive and troublesome to us, but it's not to the Spirit of God who indwells us. (laughs) Get that. And so the Father, it says, who searches the hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit, they're always connected, aren't they? They're always connected. And, and, and the Spirit is communicating for the saints. That's us, right? If we believe we've been set apart from sin and set apart as God's possession for his glory. He intercedes for the saints. Notice the last part of that phrase. According to the will of God. According to the will of God. And that should be comforting for believers that the intercession of the Spirit on their behalf when they don't know what to pray is always and only in accordance with what God's will is for that situation. What he wants to accomplish through that suffering. He's always praying what is the will of God. Now we may be unsure what God's will is in a certain situation, but the Spirit of God, again, is never unaware of what the will of God is. And due to the relationship between the Father and the Spirit, there's always clarity. There's always clarity on what God wants to accomplish in the life of a believer through suffering. You say, well, I, I'd like some of that clarity. And if, you, if, if God knew that you needed it, he'd give it to you. Do you always get the clarity that you want about why you're suffering something? Why this took place or that? No, I'm either. I'm, I'm on a stage elevated right now, but I'm right there with you. I struggle with that same thing. I wish I had greater clarity at times. But the clarity that I do have is I need to trust the Spirit. That what he's communicating to the Father about what I'm experiencing at the moment is about God's will being realized in my life and it will be realized through his ministry in me. So our, our sense of uh, uh, you know, uncertainty can be there, but we can be certain that the Spirit is working in us and interceding on behalf of us and the Father's will be done in and through us. So, the second reason we're able to live holy and sin less while suffering is because the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The first reason is because of the prospect of glory, right? Third, because God is working out a sovereign plan of salvation in our lives. Because God is working out this wonderful salvation process and plan in our lives. And that's verses 28 through 30. So, how are we to live holy, even when hurting? What's well, connecting to having confidence that God is sovereignly working out his good plan of salvation in us, which includes, by the way, all the sufferings that we're experiencing in this present time. But what, what should we know and be confident about? Well, it begins with God's promise. God's promise. If you're filling in your insert, God's promise is verse 28. And we know that, the, that for those who love God, uh, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, how, how many of you have ever heard that verse before? Every single one, right? And maybe someone's shared it with you when they know that you're suffering. Or maybe you shared it with someone else when you know that they're suffering. And that's appropriate. That's good. It's, it's God's promise. It, it, it shouldn't be a small thing. I've, I've heard other people say, it's like, yeah, that's kind of just kind of 
not giving people what they need to hear. I, I need to hear that promise from God. I do. It's meaningful. It's powerful. So this verse is often quoted by, by Christians, and it stands as one of God's marvelous promises to his children. And I think it's a verse that every believer ought to have in their memory banks, because we're all going to suffer. We're all going to experience things that are not pleasant. But the truth is, it's seldom quoted in light of the context. It's, very, it's just quoted by itself. It's not quoted from the context of what precedes it and what follows it. And we should never separate this promise from that which precedes it and that which follows it. And just say, well, what, what precedes this promise? What's all the suffering that he's been talking about from verse 18 through this point? He said, we're going to suffer in this present time, and it's not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us when Jesus returns. And by the way, he says, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you when you're going through that kind of suffering. And he's making it clear to the Father what's going on in you, and he makes it clear, the Father makes it clear what the will, his will is for you. So the implication is that what the Spirit prays for us, uh, the Father, and to the Father about our hurting, it's going to happen. And the Spirit prays according to the will of God, and so the Father answers by bringing into our lives what we need And he sends into our lives whatever it is, whatever experiences we need, no matter what they may be. And that would be especially, especially concerning suffering. And this means that the trials and the tragedies and the hardships and the hurts and, you know, that that happened to us. they, They are an answer. They are an answer. Let me say that again. They are an answer from the Father through the Spirit's intercession. What? Yeah. What do you need? You need suffering. Yeah. Could someone else intercede for me? No, I know what you need. You need suffering. That's kind of what's going on there. You need some suffering. And then what follows, of course, this promise is expressed in in verses 29 and 30. And it reveals that our suffering is part of God's wonderful magnificent, sovereign plan of delivering people from sin and delivering them unto their inheritance in heaven where the glory will be revealed to them. But let me approach this first by asking three questions that that can be answered regarding this promise. And so the first question is, to whom is the promise made? To whom is this promise made? And you'll notice that Paul says that it is for those who love God, dot, 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 those who are called according to his purpose. Some have taken this first part as saying, well, yeah, as long as you're actively loving God, serving God, and so on and so forth, then everything's going to work out for good. But if you're kind of off track a bit, you don't get that promise. But the truth is, that's wrong. Because the statement at the end, those who are called according to his purpose are identifying the exact same people. So what it's saying is, believers love God, and they've been called according to his purpose. It's the same group, the same idea. So it's important for us to see that those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, they're the same people, and it is a reference to all who have responded to the effectual call of God uh, to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So every, to get this, every true believer is a lover of God. By the way, John put it that way too. He says, we love God because he first loved us. God loved us and so we love God. That's what believers do. They love God. We don't always love him perfectly or with all our heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't always do it, but we love God. That's what believers do. That's what the children of God do. They love their father. So every true believer is a lover of God. And they are also one who has been called by God to repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So second question, what is meant by all things? And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, those called according to his purpose. What does that include? Well, it's not some things. Yeah, it's not most things. 
right? Yeah, everything. All things, he says. Now, specifically in the context, what does that mean? All the sufferings of this present time that are not worth comparing with the glory that awaited. That is what he is talking about here. All of those things that we would consider suffering will work out for our good. And, and I, wanna, I want you to know that this is not a new teaching. Paul isn't the only one who believed and taught this. In fact, you find it all the way back, I'll give you one really good example, in Genesis. How many of you read the story about Joseph, right? Joseph. Very hard life he experienced, right? Most of which was at the hands of his brothers, who sold him into slavery because they hated him because he was dad's favorite. And so they, you know, he ended up first being a slave and then thrown in prison. And he's there, I mean, years and years of suffering and, and then partial elevation and put back down into the pit. And I mean, it's just terrible. And then eventually he is raised to the second highest position in Egypt, just under Pharaoh. He's making all the decisions for the kingdom and God is using him in a powerful way. And then along comes a famine and his brothers up north in the land of Canaan have to come south to get grain to provide for their family. And he hasn't seen them for like 30 years and he, they don't recognize him and he recognizes them. And just when he had every opportunity and the power to enact revenge on his brothers, he didn't. And so in Genesis 50 and verse 20 and 21, this is what he said to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's right. For good. To bring, about, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So the bad things, the evil things, the hurtful things, and all the sufferings of this present time that we experience are meant for good in our lives. And not, get this, not for our lives only, but for others who are around us. You've got to pick that up in what it says about Joseph, what he says to his brothers. I think, truly, that most people become very self-focused when they're suffering. I mean, it really becomes all about them. You know, what they're going through, how much they're hurting. Everything, you know, is about them and what they're experiencing. But Joseph's words indicate that in our sufferings, God has good in mind for us and not just for us, but those around us whom we can impact for good and for the glory of God. So all things, all things. And then the third question is, what is the good a reference to? What is the good a reference to? Well, I'll tell you, we shouldn't understand it. We must not misunderstand this as, you know, pleasantness or gratification or that one's life will be to one's liking. And that's not the good that he refers to. We're not, we're not promised that the future will turn out to be all that we desire it to be because of this verse. Hey, don't worry about it. What you're going through, it's, it's soon past. Everything will smooth out in the end. You know, it'll be you know, just wonderful. Just wait on God. And be, that would be a false way to express that. That's not what Paul is expressing here. We're not to think that in the days ahead, there will be no thorns or thistles. There will be no hardships or struggles. We're not to understand that from this verse. No, the good is actually made clear in verse 29, where it says that we're conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. That's the good that God will bring in our lives. That's the ultimate good to which all things are working in our lives. It's eternal good. It's not temporal good that Paul has in mind. And the promise is not grounds for thinking that everything will come out in the wash, you know, because God has committed himself to sorting out the mess of our lives and and relieving us of all pain and suffering, you know, because we're his children. It's It's not a promise of smooth sailing on calm seas, as much as it is a promise that when the waves get really rough, the waves of suffering are almost overwhelming you, like, Lord, help me, I'm perishing, that we will 
we are guaranteed that we'll make it to the heaven shore where everything will be made right. It's eternal. It's not temporal that he's talking about. The good is a reference to the good work of the Father making redeemed sinners look more like his son, like their loving Savior. That's the good. I like that good. And by the way, the ultimate fulfillment of that will be when we're called to be in his presence. When the Lord returns and the dead in Christ will rise and then we who are alive shall be caught up together with them and and we'll be with the Lord forever and in the twinkling of an eye, right? The perishable will put on imperishable and the mortal will put on immortality and we will receive a body that is built for the eternal and for a, 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 a wonderful life absent the effects of the curse and sin that's the good that's good amen Amen. that's good yeah but I, I want the good now well that's what God has given you right now he's given you the good through suffering can we rewrite that a little bit No, no, no. We don't want to add or take away from what this is saying. This is so beautifully clear. Stop grumbling about what you're going through. Feel free to groan because that's natural. It's a a right response to hardship and suffering. But don't grumble against God that he's doing something bad for you. Be thankful that he's doing something good. Making you more like his son right now. Remember Christ suffered before he was glorified. And so when he brings suffering into our lives, it's part of his process in us to make us more like his son, and ultimately we too will be glorified. All glory be to him. Well, we'll have to stop there today. Bring your insert next week. You might get a new one. Probably will, but we'll keep going next week. Will we ever make it through Romans 8? Yes, we will. Will we make it before the Lord returns? Well, I don't know. It depends on whether he comes this week. So, Lord, we are thankful for your word. Thankful for the truth that Paul wrote. Your truth, that you had him right through the Spirit, carrying him uh, to keep from writing anything of error or anything that was wrong. Thank you for the perfection of the word of God and its encouragement and instruction to us. So, Lord, I I just want to say, help us to be people who sin less and live more holy because the Holy Spirit's working in us, including, including suffering. Help us to receive that as your goodness to us to make us more like your Son. Now, help us to honor you as we go through this week. Everything that we experience, may we look to you, trust the Spirit, may He be... Uh, interceding for us and may we be receiving your will for us as a result of that. All glory and honor be to you, our great God and Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.